This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. St. John Vianney spent 18 hours a day in the confessional. St. Padre Pio bore the wounds of Christ in his body. St. Mother Teresa picked up dying men, women, and children off the streets. St. Maximilian Kolbe volunteered to die in the place of another man. St. Francis of Assisi literally stripped himself of every earthly possession, including his clothes. St. Thomas Aquinas produced the Summa Theologiae in his free time. St. Teresa of Avila would lift off the ground in ecstasy after communion. And you know stories that you could add to this list. And we're captivated by the saints. The saints live in a way that is evidently extraordinary. It's as if they were on a completely different plane from the rest of humanity. And ontologically speaking, we know that this is simply what it means to be a Christian. St. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this applies in some way to everyone who's baptized and has divine grace in their souls. And yet we know that simply possessing sanctifying grace and the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity doesn't fully explain what is extraordinary about the saints. To use traditional terminology, the saints illustrate for us not just the possession of virtue, but the heroic practice of virtue, which means that they consistently, in all circumstances, exercise virtue with ease and delight. And not only do they exercise virtue, every virtue, the virtues are highly integrated in them, so they exercise every virtue harmoniously in their lives. We know from spiritual theology that this is because they are constantly under the influence of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in them, directing them interiorly. The saints live in what is called transforming union. They've been so purified by God that he acts in them with so little resistance that they no longer commit even venial sins deliberately. The fire of divine love so consumes the saints, they cooperate so fully with grace that their entire lives and all of their actions radiate the presence of Christ. And the marvelous effects of grace in their souls are not only noticed by the people around them. Ordinarily, the saints have a constant interior awareness of the presence of God. And the Holy Spirit even has to provide them with special infusions of fortitude so that they can withstand the immensity of God's love that they experience within themselves. When we look at the saints from the outside and we get even the slightest glimpse of what's going on inside of them, we naturally recognize, or supernaturally recognize, that holiness is what we were made for. That attaining this is really the only true adventure. And so we instinctively want to learn how the saints get to where they are. And when we consider the saints, I think we know rather quickly by some intuition that at the heart of their holiness is an intensely personal life of contemplation and prayer. They know God and they are in continual interior communion with him. 
St. Teresa of Avila speaks of growing in holiness as basically the same thing as growing in prayer. And this is why good Christians, I think even those who are just starting off on their spiritual journeys, always want to learn about contemplation and prayer and how to grow in these. And this means that I have the privilege of speaking with you this afternoon about something that not only do we all have a certain natural inclination toward, but also, please God, as Christians, a supernatural attraction toward. In other words, if this talk is boring, it is clearly and entirely my fault because this topic is supremely intrinsically interesting to every human being, and especially to Christians who are familiar with the saints and in touch with their God-given vocation to holiness. My talk this evening is called, or afternoon, is called The Majesty of Truth, St. Thomas on the Contemplation and Worship of God. I'll be focusing on contemplation, what it is, specifically according to St. Thomas, and also how prayer is related to it. Heard a little bit about that earlier today. In my last talk, I gave you some concrete suggestions about growing in prayer, so my practical recommendations in this talk will be geared toward growing in contemplation. First of all, I want to prove to you that prayer and contemplation are not the same thing. And this is not immediately evident. If you're familiar with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, then you know that it speaks of three expressions of prayer, it calls it. It calls them vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplative prayer. This is how the the Catechism divides up the three expressions of prayer into vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplative prayer. And if if you read spiritual theology, for example, by the Dominican Jordan Almond, that's Jordan Almond, not Jordan Almond, (laughs) because every time I say that name, someone says, is that Jordan Almond? No. Jordan Almond, it's a really outstanding summary of spiritual theology. Amen outlines the stages of prayer as described by St. Teresa of Avila, and Amen rightly observes that after the initial stages of vocal prayer and meditation, the Christian's ordinary form of prayer becomes more and more deeply engaging forms of infused contemplation. And so the, the Catholic tradition, especially in the last five centuries, has been consistent in speaking about contemplation as a kind of prayer. So now, what am I doing telling you that contemplation and prayer are different? You might wonder, like around the same time in my previous talk, whether I'm going to be causing a scandal here at the Dominican House of Studies, proposing dubious things, suggesting ideas contrary to the catechism and the saints. But, as you've probably gathered by now, that's not my intention. It appears to me that we have in the Catholic tradition a general way of speaking about prayer and a more precise way of speaking about prayer. If we take Lexio Divina, for example, Lexio Divina, we talk, uh, Professor Idol mentioned this uh, last night, Lexio Divina is one of the most famous methods for praying with scripture, first outlined by the Carthusian monk Guido Grigo II in the 12th century in his work Scala Clastralium, or The Ladder of Monks. Guigo says that we should progress through the steps of lexio, reading scripture, meditatio, considering the meaning of the words, oratio, which is prayer based on what we've been meditating on, and then contemplatio, which is resting in and enjoying the presence of God. So we have these four steps of lexio divina, reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation. 
And there are a few things that are fascinating about this. First of all, we have a method of prayer called Lexio Divina, and one of the stages is called prayer. Which tells me that there's a way of speaking about prayer generally, as, especially as a dialogue with God, which is how the church's magisterium tends to speak about prayer these days. But there's also a more precise way of speaking about prayer in the tradition, signified by the term oratio. And this is a more precise way of speaking. In this way, this more precise way of speaking, prayer means petition, as we've heard a few times already, asking God for something. This is how St. Thomas primarily understands prayer as a petition. Now, in this fourfold division of the steps of Lexio Divina, also notice that Guigo distinguishes oratio and contemplatio. He says that there are different moments or acts, right? Prayer and contemplation. So gen- when we think of prayer, generally speaking, if we, if we think about prayer life, for example, right, contemplation might be an element of that in the way that we typically think about how we pray. But considered as specific acts, prayer and contemplation are distinct. And St. Thomas treats them as distinct in the Summa. They're distinct acts with distinct structures. And I already mentioned a few times, prayer is a petition to God, but what is contemplation? How does St. Thomas define it? In question 180 of the Secunda Secundae, Article 3, we reply to the first objection, if you, you know, are following along in your sumae. St. Thomas says the following. Contemplation pertains to the simple act itself of gazing on the truth. Wherefore, Richard of St. Victor says that contemplation is the clear and free, attentive gaze on the thing observed. So I'll just say that again. Contemplation pertains to the simple act itself of gazing on the truth. So if you're taking notes, there's a definition for you. Contemplation is the simple act of gazing on the truth. And if you want a good initial sense of the natural human capacity for contemplation, I'd recommend Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Joseph Pieper emphasizes a distinction in St. Thomas between ratio and intellectus, reason and understanding. St. Thomas thinks that we have one single power of reason, but this power operates in two ways. And it's slightly different from the distinction between speculative and practical. Um, but, but the power of reason operates in two ways. Reasoning, which is a movement from one thing to another. Right? So we get like discursive thinking, running thinking, moving thinking. So there's reasoning and also understanding, which is a simple act. Resting in the awareness of some truth. And Joseph Pieper emphasizes that for modern man, this is especially important to hear, the human beings have a real capacity for this act of understanding, which we share in some sense with the angels and which is analogous to God's own being, of simply knowing the truth, of seeing the truth in a simple glance. So for St. Thomas, contemplation is an act of the power of reason. It's not reasoning, which is discursive and methodical, it's understanding. It's exactly what they portray in clip art with the picture of the light bulb going off over someone's head. It's the moment when you see the truth clearly, 
we have a moment of spiritual rest and delight in that vision. So say you're reading Aristotle, and it dawns upon you, without question, that monarchy is the most efficient form of government, because it involves rule by a single principle. Now, obviously, monarchy regularly degenerates into tyranny, so in most cases, it's not the best form of government for a people. But from the standpoint of efficiency, rule by one is more efficient than coordinated rule by many. And this moment of absolute clarity about forms of government is a kind of natural contemplation. You simply see the truth. This just is the way it is. But for St. Thomas, contemplation is ultimately about God. And so we need to raise our sights from the ideal structure of earthly governance to the one true governor of the universe, the one principium omnis, the supereminent principle that su who supernaturally gives to all created principles all of their natural causal power and authority. God, who by his wisdom has arranged all things by measure and number and weight. And who not only gives perfection and power to things, but also existence to all existing things. God, whose own invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, can be clearly perceived in the things that he has made. And this gives me an excuse to quote one of my favorite biblical passages that I don't hear quoted very often from the book of Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So contemplation for St. Thomas is ultimately about God. Whenever St. Thomas considers human nature, contemplation is never far from his mind. God himself is the eternal and infinite act of understanding his own unbounded being. We could say that God is always contemplating himself with infinite joy. And out of the abundance of his goodness, he freely created us human beings precisely so that we could participate in his own infinitely blessed life of contemplating himself, who is infinite being, truth, and goodness. St. Thomas is adamant that all human activity is ordered toward happiness, and happiness consists in the beatific vision, which is a simple gaze on God, a participation in God's own self-understanding. In other words, the goal of all human life is contemplating God in the light of glory. So for St. Thomas, the perfect contemplation of God and glory is our ultimate goal. But what do we do before we get there? What should we do, as St. Anselm says, midway between faith and revelation? Now that we know about God and our vocation to eternal contemplative beatitude, but before we see him clearly in eternal vision. If we remember Joseph Pieper, St. Thomas thinks that we have the power of intellectus or understanding, which means that we can still contemplate God in this life. Our contemplation and knowledge will be imperfect in this life because it will be indirect through created things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, as St. Paul says. But we really can know God in this life through faith and contemplation, even if that knowledge is partial and in some way mediated through creatures. In the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul writes, 
Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. So we can know God by faith, and our knowledge of God can grow through contemplation in this life until ultimately, God willing, we will see him in heaven in an immediate, direct, permanent way. All right. So what does St. Thomas thinks motivates us to perform the act of contemplation? From the earlier talk, you should already have a guess as to what that is. Um, in his commentary on the sentences and in the Summa, St. Thomas discusses two possible motives for contemplation. One is natural, the other is supernatural. Because we are rational creatures by nature, we are able to contemplate the truth. And we can set about contemplating the truth because doing so constitutes our natural perfection. St. Thomas says that philosophers contemplate things in this way. They contemplate because they are motivated by the natural desire to know the truth. And this is a kind of natural love for oneself as a rational being. But we contemplate things not only because we love ourselves and desire our own perfection. Above all, we contemplate things because we love those things. And this is particularly the case when it comes to other persons. If you have ever fallen in love, you know that you can spend hours happily looking at the person that you love and taking in everything about them that you can. In fact, whenever we're really interested in something, our eyes will dilate and we blink less often. This is a kind of physical manifestation of a spiritual truth, right? Love opens our eyes. When we love someone, we want to know everything we can about them. As Carly Rae Jepsen says, <laughs> it's like everything you say is a sweet revelation. All I want to do is get into your head. And so love can motivate contemplation. For Christians, it's love for God that motivates contemplation of God. And St. Thomas cites St. Gregory the Great, who said that one from the love of God is a flame to gaze on his beauty. And this is expressed wonderfully in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Thou hast said, Seek ye my face. My heart says to thee, thy face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not thy face from me. So love can motivate a Christian to contemplate God. But what happens when we have some glimpse, some simple intuition into God's goodness, power, beauty, love, truth, or wisdom? St. John of the Cross writes about the contemplation of God's attributes. 
he describes the divine attributes as lamps in his poem, The Living Flame of Love. And St. John of the Cross explains. So remember, lamps refer to the divine attributes that can be known in contemplation. St. John of the Cross says, Moses beheld these lamps on Mount Sinai, where when God passed by, he prostrated himself on the ground. And began to call out and enumerate some of them. Emperor, Lord, God, merciful, clement, patient, of much compassion, true, who keeps mercy unto thousands, who takes away iniquities and sins, and no one is of himself innocent before you. St. John continues a little bit later, It is noteworthy that the delight received by the soul in the rapture of love, communicated by the fire of the light of these lamps, is wonderful and immense. Each lamp burns in love, and the warmth from each furthers the warmth of the other, and the flame of the one, the flame of the other, just as the light of one sheds light on the other, because through each attribute the other is known. Thus all of them are one light and one fire, and each of them is one light and one fire. Immensely absorbed in delicate flames, subtly wounded with love through each of them, and more wounded by all of them together, more alive in the love of the life of God, the soul perceives clearly that this love is proper to eternal life. Eternal life is the aggregation of all goods, and the soul somehow experiences this here, and fully understands the truth of the bridegroom's assertion in the Song of Songs, that the lamps of love are lamps of fire and of flames. You are beautiful in your steps and shoes, prince's daughter. Who can relate the magnificence and rareness of your delight and majesty in the admirable splendor and love of your lamps? In other words... When we contemplate God, who is goodness itself, we can't help but fall in love. And especially when we see that God is love and that all of his attributes are one with his love. And so he loves us in all of his attributes. St. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So to put it simply, to know God is to love him. By consequence. (laughs) St. Thomas says that this is the effect of contemplation. And this is St. Thomas's words here. Since everyone delights when he obtains what he loves, it follows that the contemplative life terminates in delight, from which love becomes more intense. And so for St. Thomas, love motivates the Christian to contemplate God, and contemplating God inflames love for him even more. This is why contemplation transformed the saints into living images of God's love. St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 
and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And St. Clair of Assisi wrote in her third letter to Agnes of Prague, transform your whole being into the image of the Godhead itself through contemplation so that you too may feel what his friends feel as they taste the hidden sweetness which God himself has reserved from the beginning for those who love him. So love is an effect of Christian contemplation. This is one reason why the saints are so perfect in charity, because they have such a high degree of contemplation. But St. Thomas also mentions another effect of contemplation, admiration. So the root of the word admiration the Latin mirare means wonder or awe. St. Thomas describes it. These are St. Thomas's words. Admiration is a species of fear resulting from the apprehension of something exceeding our faculties. Hence, admiration is an act following contemplation of the sublime truth. This means is the more we contemplate God, not only do we love him more, for his truth and his goodness and his justice and his mercy, we also increasingly recognize him as greater than ourselves. And so we grow in respect for his majesty. I have to say I was a little hesitant to speak about contemplation on this retreat because I always prefer to speak about things that I have more experience with. And... You know, of course, theology is based not on experience, but on divine revelation. But when it comes to contemplation, often we are compelled to rely on and discuss the experiences of the saints. And so there's a bit of a danger, at least for me, uh, in discussing the experiences of the saints while I play video games more than I fast. But I think I've had at least some experience of this admiration that can be stirred up by contemplation. And so I just will share this story with you for your enjoyment, edification, God willing, understanding, perhaps. Uh, when I was in high school and was still relatively new to practicing my faith, I attended a big Catholic youth retreat. And it was Saturday evening. They had kind of adoration going on in an upstairs room and a big dance going on downstairs in the big conference room. And I don't think I had ever, at this point, voluntarily gone to Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament before, but I felt very strongly compelled uh, to go this evening, to go at least spend some time in Adoration before going down for the dance. And so I was in Adoration, and the priest read from the Gospel. He gave a brief, brief reflection, and at a certain point, he knelt down. And I believe he also had incense, incensing the Blessed Sacrament. And the priest began singing, Adoramus Te Domine. With the angels and archangels, Adoramus Te Domine. With the patriarchs and prophets, Adoramus Te Domine. With the Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Adoramus Te Domine. With the apostles and evangelists, Adoramus Te Domine. With all the martyrs of Christ, Adoramus Te Domine. 
with all who witness to the gospel of the Lord, Adoramus te Domine, with all your people of the church throughout the world, Adoramus te Domine. And I had had a little bit of Latin to that, up to that point, so I, I understood at least the gist of it, that we adore you, Lord. And it hit me that this was God himself in front of me. And I already knew that. Now, even as a child, I had a strong belief in the real presence. But this was something more, either a gift of understanding or some grace. But I became more conscious of the reality of God's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Now, this is really God. And at that point, I had to bow down and put my head underneath the conference chair in front of me. And I, and I just wept for about half an hour. And all I could think was, God is here. This is God in front of me. And how is it that I'm in the presence of God? And I remember not being able to understand how everyone else could just sit there in their chairs while God was present right in front of them, let alone how many people were downstairs dancing and never even made it up for adoration. Now, I don't know if that qualifies technically as contemplation, but it seems to me that it was a rather simple gaze on a, a divine truth of the reality of the blessed sacrament, the truth of faith, right? And it certainly had the effect of inspiring fear of the divine majesty. But it wasn't a repulsive fear, right? It was awe at the mercy of God who allowed me to be in his presence and in fact wanted me to be there. And eventually I heard the priest read the gospel again and give his reflection again and sing the hymn again. And so I must have stayed close to two hours. Because how do you leave when God is present in front of you? And so that's the story of how my first holy hour <laughs> turned into two hours, <laughs> or about two hours. So for St. Thomas, contemplation is the goal of human life. It's perfect in heaven, but we can still have some contemplation of God in this life which flows from love and increases love and causes admiration. So how can we grow in contemplation in this, in this life? How can we contemplate God more frequently, more easily, more fully? In Article 3, the question on the contemplative life response to the fourth objection, St. Thomas says that we need four things. Prayer, listening, reading, and meditation. So St. Thomas says, first of all, that we need prayer. These terms are getting quite familiar now. St. Thomas says, first of all, we need prayer. Above all, contemplation is a gift. It depends on God's revealing the truth to us, and especially the truth about himself. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the gift of wisdom so that we can know God through contemplation and we obtain this gift through prayer, through asking for it. 
Remember, St. Paul prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And in this way, contemplation and prayer form a kind of positive feedback loop. The more we know God by contemplation, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we desire to know him. And the more we desire to know him, the more we ask him to reveal his face to us in the spirit. And in answer to this prayer, he reveals himself to us. And the more he reveals himself to us, the more we come to love him. And so contemplation and prayer together take us deeper into God. Those who eat of me will hunger for more, and those who drink of me will thirst for more. And even the admiration that's an effect of contemplation moves us to pray. The more we contemplate God, the more we recognize his majesty and his generosity. St. Thomas speaks of prayer as an act of worship, because when we ask God for things that we need, we acknowledge that he's the source of all of our goods. When we pray, we're acknowledging our poverty, but above all, we're acknowledging his power and goodness. And so after contemplation, when we're uh, admiring his greatness and his goodness, this leads us to want to honor him by submitting to him our petitions, acknowledging that he alone can grant us what we desire, which is in the end his very self. And so contemplation moves us to prayer, and prayer leads us back to contemplation. St. Thomas says we also need listening and reading, because we learn the truth about God in this life from others. When St. Thomas says we need listening, he has in mind, above all, the paradigmatic biblical example of contemplation, St. Mary of Bethany, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So those who listen to the word of God being preached and taught receive from others the principles of faith and the arguments of reasoning that can lead us in meditation to the contemplation and knowledge of God. And when we read the word of God in scripture, we likewise receive the revealed truths of faith and the ways of thinking that lead us to the contemplation of God. This is why contemplatives are always reading scripture. But prayer, hearing, and reading are not enough. St. Thomas says we also need meditation or study. And by study, he doesn't mean going to class or taking notes, although that's included in it. Studium in Latin means primarily zeal and devotion of spirit. So we must seriously apply our minds to the things of God. Intentional meditation is necessary for us to know God better. God has revealed to us the truths of faith, but he has also given us the power of reason, which means he expects us to apply our reason in order to understand the faith and come to know him as best as we can through the use of our reason. God ordinarily, at least at first, causes us to grow in knowledge of himself through meditation, through actively thinking about him. And so St. Thomas says we need reading, listening, meditation, and prayer if we're going to attain contemplation and knowledge of God. And this is fascinating because these are just about the stages of Lexio Divina. And so without explicitly recommending Lexio Divina in the form that Guigo outlined it, St. Thomas at least says that we need the components of it in order 
to attain contemplation. So now I'm going to move from St. Thomas's scientific explication of what is necessary for contemplation and add some of my own recommendations, and therefore, in some respects, will be of less authority. But I still try and draw primarily from the saints, so, you know, these aren't just kind of wild ideas. St. Thomas says that we need to read and meditate on Scripture. And very practically, this means we need to dedicate specific time each day for meditation on Scripture. In Colossians 3, St. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice that he doesn't say, Let the word of Christ visit you briefly. But let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To dwell means to remain, and remaining takes time. And that means we need to take time. We need to set time aside for the word of Christ to dwell in us. And that's when the word can take deeper root, grow, and begin to bear fruit, the fruit of Christian contemplation and action. I know that the Dominicans will be happy that I'm going to recommend to you the Holy Rosary. In the rosary, like with scripture, we're meditating on the truths of the faith and especially the mysteries of the life of Christ, which is the best source material for contemplation. And at the same time, with the rosary, we're praying with Mary and Mary is the supreme contemplative. The gospel of Luke says that Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. In the rosary, we're constantly imploring Mary's assistance while we meditate. And in response to those prayers, she obtains for us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that on the authority of John Paul II. And these gifts lead us to contemplation. And I think this is why people so often find the rosary to be an extremely powerful prayer, not only in its intercessory power, but even in its immediate effects in our souls. Mary, as it were, brings the Spirit with her. And hopefully it's not forbidden to speak here at the Dominican House of Studies about other orders besides the Dominicans. But I would also recommend the brown scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Now, if you're invested in the brown scapular, you become affiliated with the Carmelite order. And you share in the spiritual benefits of the order. And contemplation is a special charism of the Carmelites. Now, don't ask me how that's possible, because I don't know, uh, but that's just what they say. And this is a hypothesis of mine, but it seems to me that there's a special grace attached to the brown scapular, which helps people who wear it to acquire a kind of Marian spirit of prayer and contemplation. I can say for myself, without any clear explanation as to why, but it seems to me that I would be a very different person if I hadn't worn the brown scapular. And again, I have no like actual evidence to back that up. It's just a kind of guess or intuition. I would be a very different person without the brown scapular, and I can only attribute that to some grace. Uh, and don't worry, you can still become a member of the Dominican Third Order if you wear the brown scapular. Is that correct? Sure. So what, we can all do that. Is that like a happy medium? Does that work? I wasn't unhappy. Great. Okay. 
So what I've recommended so far have been preparations for contemplation, and I could offer more. Living chastely, mortifying our senses, living peacefully with others as much as we can, and not overcommitting to active works. But I also want to give you some recommendations for the practice of contemplation itself. Contemplation is always in some respect a gift, but it's also an act of the intellect. It's something we do. What's unique about it is, is that it is an act precisely of resting, a kind of active inactivity. It's not an act of emptying the mind, but an act of peacefully dwelling in the truth. And so it's something we can and should get in the habit of doing. In the same way, or a similar way, as we get in the habit of resting from work on Sundays. The Jesuit father, Jean-Pierre de Cossade, provides the following advice, which we can implement when we're reading spiritual works. He says, I advise you above all to enter into the meaning of the consoling and solid truths that you will find laid down in this book. And from time to time, make short pauses to allow these truths time to flow through all the recesses of the soul and to give occasion for the operation of the Holy Spirit, who during these peaceful pauses and times of silent attention engraves and imprints these heavenly truths in the heart. I'll repeat that. I advise you above all to enter into the meaning of the consoling and solid truths that you will find laid down in this book. And from time to time, make short pauses to allow these truths time to flow through all the recesses of the soul and to give occasion for the operation of the Holy Spirit, who during these peaceful pauses and times of silent attention engraves and imprints these heavenly truths in the heart. So we should peacefully pause from time to time when reading spiritual works and this trains us with a contemplative disposition, and in itself provides occasion for contemplation. Perhaps the most important thing is that when we are especially touched or moved by some truth, we should allow ourselves the freedom to contemplate it, and not rush to return to discursive thinking, or jump too quickly into some other activity. To say while Professor Idol was speaking, I was in the back. I don't, you didn't see me because I was in the back, and I had my eyes closed for about half of it. And it's not because I was bored, it's not because I was tired, but it's because the things he was saying were beautiful. And I couldn't help but just soak in the beauty of what he was describing. When the truth comes to us, whether during prayer, whether we're, while we're reading, while we're walking, Wherever we are, we should practice soaking in the truth. We should intentionally linger with the truth when it makes itself especially clear to us. God the Father told St. Catherine of Siena that if we're praying vocal prayers and he visits our soul with his truth, we should be attentive to his visitation and not return to our vocal prayers until his visitation is complete unless we're under some real obligation to say these vocal prayers and can't finish them another time. So if you're reading scripture or praying the rosary and some truth strikes you in a powerful way, 
Just be with it. Fully receive it. Enjoy it. Nourish your soul with it. And thank God for it. And I'll tell you something related. Though I don't know how practically useful this will be. But I thought of it, so I wrote it down. And because I wrote it down, I'm going to tell you. I've spent a fair amount of time with the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. And I've heard a number of rather, uh, a rather extraordinary number of what I would judge to be authentic prophecies. Now, technically speaking, prophecy is divinely inspired knowledge. But we also will speak about prophecy as the delivery in speech of that knowledge that's given in an inspired way. And so people will often speak about prophecy uh, as a word from the Lord. A word which God gives to strengthen the church. And so this is the type of grace that we see in something like the Dyer of St. Faustina. Prophetic words in the church don't have the same weight as the words of Scripture. But they are still words from the Lord and gifts from the Spirit meant to build up the church. Which is why St. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Do not despise prophesying, but test everything and hold fast what is good. And just to give you an example, in case you've never heard of this or heard it, um, I'll just give you an example. This is a prophecy that I more or less picked out of random, out of my mind, um, that is by many people accepted as an authentic prophecy from a charismatic renewal in 1977. Just to give you a sense of like what this is kind of like. The Lord says to you, Stand in unity with one another, and let nothing tear you apart, and by no means separate from one another through your jealousies and bitternesses and your personal preferences, but hold fast to one another, for I am about to let you undergo a severe time of trial and testing. You will need to be in unity with one another. I tell you this also, I am Jesus the Victor King, and I have promised you victory. Now, my experience at charismatic prayer meetings, and I've been to many of them, is that often there'll be a very powerful prophetic word delivered like this. And then the music ministry will immediately start playing a song and everyone will start singing. And I just want to say, stop. Just take 10 seconds and listen. Just let that word sink in for a second. Like what, what Jesus says in Luke 9, 44, let these words sink into your ears. Now, it's not always as dramatic as a prophecy delivered at a prayer meeting, but I think the Lord is trying to speak to us all the time. And yet we're so anxious to move on to the next thing that we don't give enough time to fully listen even to what we know he's saying to us or to fully receive what he's giving us in his word. So let's conclude with two quotes. St. Thomas explains in Article 6, Question 180, Discursive reasoning having ceased, the gaze of the soul must be fixed in contemplation of one simple truth. And Jesus says in Luke 10, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. There is need of only one thing. That's it.
So I'm happy to field any questions. Katie. Um, I don't know if this is necessarily a question. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more. You're giving the practical advice. One of the things you said was to not um, overcommit to like things in the active life, basically. Could you just say? <clears throat> could I say more? So Katie's, <clears throat> Katie was asking me to elaborate on uh, a point that I made, at, uh, which was in order to grow in contemplation, we ought to not overcommit to the to active works. And the key there, right, is to not overcommit, which means you can commit to active works and you ought to commit to as many active works as the Lord calls you to. Uh, but it seems to me that in our society, we are far more active in general than we ought to be in the sense that we're always running from one thing to another. And it seems like we don't even have time to kind of give one another, like to even have a conversation that doesn't feel rushed with another person. And a very practical cause for that, I think, is that in some ways, many of us will commit to too many things. We will, you know, whether out of good, you know, good intentions, good motives, good works, we'll want to do a lot of good things. But in, in a lot of cases, I think we will commit to doing so many things that we end up not being able to do any of them well. And we also are running from one thing to another so much that we're unable to really give other people our full attention and love in the moment. And so in terms of how would you gauge what you're called to, I mean, you can pay attention to, you think of St. Catherine of Siena, right? She was she was super active. She was doing all kinds of stuff all the time. She also spent like years in, you know, learning directly from God how to read in the closet, right? So, so like she had an intense contemplative life, but she learned how to balance this out, right? Because God called her into an active life. But she, she acted in the active life uh, under the direction of Christ. And so I think before, you know, a useful thing perhaps is to pray before committing to anything. Even just very briefly, someone asks you to do something, Ask God what he thinks about your doing that thing. I mean, especially if I'm asked to do anything that would take more than a few hours, I'll spend a few minutes praying about that because I want to know that I'm spending my time for the greatest glory of God and in a way that's not going to um, like hinder my ability to do something that he's called me to do well just because I want to be doing more things. Um, but, you know, this is obviously... Something like in all matters like this, that's useful to discuss with an outside observer, with a spiritual director, with someone who can help you, who can give you an objective view of your own personality, dispositions, vocation, graces. Uh, because some people just like really like being really calm all the time, so they don't commit to anything. Um, so practically, I, I'd want to work it out with kind of each individual person. Uh, because they're obviously virtue is in the mean, right? So if someone is like, oh, I'm a, I'm a contemplative, I don't do active works. And they're like, you know, they never clean the kitchen or something. Um, that's a problem. Uh, but because love for God grows in both active works and contemplative works. I mean, it grows if you're fulfilling your obligations of your state in life. Love, for, love only grows when you're doing what God is calling you to do. 
But like with everything, it's, you know, you grow in a balancing act of, of discerning what God is calling you to practically. And I just, it just seems to me that we're so, we do so much, we're running so much that it's hard to just step back and, and be more, just be more calm. I mean, you really can't, like, to love people, you have to, in a sense, be calm. You have to be interiorly calm to let God's love flow through you to another person and to be able to receive the gift of the presence of another person. And if you, if you have a real gift to be super active, you're still going to have interior peace and be able to communicate that peace to other people. And so maybe you could ask, if you're wondering, am I too active? You could ask somebody, you know, do, does it feel like when I'm with you, I'm giving you my attention or that I'm always anxious to go to the next thing. And that might be a sign. Well, maybe you need to find a way to, you know, be more present. And maybe that means practically just cutting back on some things. Yeah. I, those are just my thoughts. I don't know if that's helpful. Of course, it's rooted in a, a you know, we could say a kind of heretical worldview of kind of that our activities are, what has primacy in advancing the kingdom of God when primarily it's God's grace it God himself that is responsible for spreading the kingdom. And so in Novo Millennio Iniunte, St. John Paul II said that, says that when we go into the third millennium, this is why prayer ought to have such a primacy uh, in our pastoral focus. Like, what are we going to do? Third millennium is coming. What are we going to do? We're going to stop. We're going to pray because when we pray, it's when we realize that God is the one who's in charge of making things happen, not us. So you need at least a solid chunk of contemplative activity in your life, even to know how to be doing the active life well. And here it's good to follow the general guidelines of the saints. You know, they'll say for lay people, you know, half an hour to an hour of meditation, plus or minus liturgy is good, right? You, you ought to have that. I think Francis Sales something like, you know, I pray half an hour a day in addition to all of the other, you know, priestly obligations, but when I'm busy, then an hour. Because <laughs> he knows he needs that, you know? Yeah, Jimmy. So you, we, we spend some time in, in active life doing, doing work, and then we spend some time in rest. And my first question is, is all of our rest, should that be, con or, you know, the general use of the word prayer? Um, and if not, what is the kind of rest that will dispose us to transition from um, a more like lay, um, like watching a movie kind of rest into um, the general prayer of meditation, prayer, contemplation? So Jimmy was asking, you know, what types of, when we're not doing the duties of our state in life, we're not performing active works, what type of leisure or restful activities should we be engaging in so that we can most fruitfully turn to prayer and action? And should all of our kind of free time be spent in kind of prayer and contemplation? Uh, this is a really hard question. Um, and I knew it as you were starting to speak. I was like, ah. Uh, Here's the, here's the, here's the question. Uh, you know, the ideal would probably be to take, um, I'd say like an ideal is take something like a, a religious order. That's a mixed life. Look at their orarium 
and say, you know, does my life have any type of resemblance to this? You know, is, is a religious going to be spending four hours a day watching TV? You know, no. Could they spend half an hour watching TV? Yeah. You know, I, I think, <laughs> um, you know, there's, <laughs> um, so that might be like a general guideline is, is always like, whenever it comes to discernment in life, typically what you, what you, what the spiritual writers say, I'm here, I'm just speaking of Adolf Tanqueray. Um, and I think he's getting this from St. Ignatius is he's, he says, when we're making decisions about kind of how we are going to run our lives in terms of what good Christians ordinarily do, we should be like, okay with doing that. But if it's something out of the norm for what you'd say, maybe call a devout Catholic doing, then you would want to like check with your spiritual director or something. So it's within the realm of normalcy for a lay person to spend, you know, up to an hour a day in prayer and mass, right? But if what if you're going beyond that, you want a spiritual director to check in with you. You want to check in with, right? Especially for something like that. That's out of the norm. Uh, but I mean, there's just so many varieties of ways to answer that question. You know, how do we spend our free time? What is the, I mean, part of it is the practice of, it varies from, from person to person too. You know, you say even a television show that for one person might be an occasion of sin and distraction for another person might be really restful, right? So it's really hard to answer that question in a way that I think would be really satisfying. But I think that last point maybe gives some guidance is, you know, if we're attentive to our own spiritual lives and somewhat of our own interior life, then we should get a sense of whether a certain type of activity is generally helpful for us or not. And again, other people could tell us too, you know, ever since you started watching that show, you've been a jerk or something. I don't know. Um, Sometimes God speaks to the criticisms of others. We just don't like to hear God that way. And then we pretend it's not God. Not to say that God is behind the malicious intent of the person who may be criticizing you, but you should judge and weigh and consider perhaps this is, there's something of truth here and then not give into any diabolical accusations and don't be hard on yourself. But in any case, my point is if if people are always telling you you're a jerk, like maybe think about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, if we look this back to um, Dr. Adams' speech earlier, would we consider the the friendship doing nothing to the time either between like friends or spouses or family to be active life or contemplative life? Uh, so your name again Diana. was Diana. Was asking, uh, you know, since uh, would we consider the time with family and friends that is kind of inactive? Uh, would that be something akin to the contemplative life with respect to God? And I would say yes. And I think this is where I would recommend Joseph Pieper's book. Uh, is he's, He is very good at showing kind of uh, this mode of life, which is not primarily about what we are accomplishing, what we are doing. It's not all about the, the implementations of our practical reason, but about truth and about beauty And it's not about when you're spending time with your family and friends, you're not just trying to make something. 
right? You're just enjoying their presence. And so, yeah, I think this is a crucial analogy and not only analogy between family life and, you know, Christian contemplation, but even a kind of participation. It ought to be that your family rests on Sundays also participates in a kind of contemplation of God. But Joseph Pieper would be a better person to ask on that question. Or Professor Idle. <laughs> um, one, more one more question. Yeah. But the short answer is yes, I think. Did you have a question? Father Jonah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of well, what you're saying is I'm going to have to change my life. Like, and my life is actually weird. We do about that. Are, are you asking about yourself or is this like a high, are you like putting your in persona persona is like kind of the passive like when you're confronted with the question like you know these are big words these are kind of old words contemplation prayer like easy to think about this in regards to another person oh yeah but i am asking for myself too in that sense but like it's just a question like if you're faced with this like in a classroom like what do you what do you do with that so Father John's question is, what do you do with the, 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 radicality of the, call. the radicality of the call to holiness and of contemplation and prayer? Um, and so for the first thing is to, I would say that if God calls us to this, he'll give us the grace for it. And so in that sense, it's good news that he calls us to a, a deep kind of communion with himself. So this is really good news that God uh, is calling us to holiness. He's calling us to contemplation and to a deep life of union with him. St. John Paul II says, even lay people shouldn't be satisfied with a shallow prayer life that doesn't fill their whole lives. And there he doesn't mean they're praying all the time, but that the dialogue with God is continual. Um, but what do we do practically here? I think, you know, I tried to give just a few starting points, you know, have set time of prayer each day. Pray the rosary, wear the scapular, pause while you're reading once in a while, get into these habits gradually. You know, the danger is, uh, St. Teresa of Avila says this, you know, the danger is sometimes overzealousness or overcommitment. And the problem is, especially people who are just starting off in the spiritual life, they'll hear something like this uh, and they'll say, I'm going to pray two hours a day every day. And then they fail because God isn't giving them the grace for that or the call for that. And then the devil accuses them. So they feel bad, like they're not spiritual, they're not holy, they're not going to make it. And then they get discouraged and then they give up prayer altogether. And so it's always better to do things incrementally and gradually. And then, so for anyone who has, you know, no element of daily prayer or no practices that would be kind of oriented towards contemplation, start with something small, right? So it'd be adding... 15 minutes a day of reading and praying with scripture. And then through a few years, move it up to an hour. And if you get up to an hour, stop there. And then if you feel, if you really sense that God is calling you to more, then in dialogue with the spiritual director, you know, provided it's in accord with your state in life, then you could go deeper in it. Uh, and so I think being gradual is key. Doing it in conversation with another person is key so that we're discerning correctly. Uh, having hope, that was my original point, that this is actually an invitation by God and a grace. And, but you're right, it is a demand. I mean, to live the life that requires, you know, I mean, 
you're doing it, <laughs> Father, of, of living a kind of, of uh, living a life consecrated to God. And it has, you know, God asks sacrifices of us. He asks us to, to give up things. But ultimately what he's offering us is greater. And so that's why we have the courage to do it. So we might seem like a lot to like give up and half an hour a day, but like, really? Is that really a lot based on considering what you get out of that? Like a continual sense of union with God, direction from God in terms of practical decisions in your life, a sense of dialogue with God that's on a regular basis. I mean, is that worth half an hour? I think so. So whatever God, whatever sacrifices God asks of us, it's, it's for our good. And so, you know, that's just kind of what I would say to that.